Welcome everybody. Welcome to this, our Wednesday lecture at Rare Book School. It's really nice to have you with us, uh, particularly given the fact that our speaker this evening is among the most distinguished alumna of Rare Book School in recent times. Our speaker this evening, Dr. Hannah Marcus, is the John and Ruth Hazel Associate Professor of the Social Sciences in the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University. She earned her BA at the University of Pennsylvania and her PhD at Stanford University. Professor Marcus's research focuses on the scientific culture of early modern Europe between 1400 and 1700. Her first book, Forbidden Knowledge, Medicine, Science, and Censorship in Early Modern Italy from the University of Chicago Press in 2020, explores the censorship of medical books from their proliferation in print through the prohibitions placed on many of these texts during the Counter-Reformation. Her account explains how and why the books prohibited by the Catholic Church in Italy ended up back on the shelves of private and public Italian libraries in the 17th century. The reviews have been positively dithyrambic. Cambridge scholar Eloise Davies writes, this is book history at its most human. In Marcus's hands, minor annotations bring the readers of the past to life. Marcus handles her dazzling array of manuscripts with virtuoso skill, operating across multiple languages and an enviable spread of regional archives. Professor Marcus's second book project, Methuselah's Children, the Renaissance discovery of old age is a study of ideas about longevity and experiences of advanced old age in a period when the average life expectancy was 35. She is also the translator of Camilla Aculiani's Letters on Natural Philosophy, 1584, and is co-authoring a book with Paula Findlin about Galileo's correspondence entitled Galileo's Letters, Experiments in Friendship, which grows out of their collaboration on the Galileo Correspondence Project. Her public writing has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, and the Boston Globe. And if you haven't already read her New York Times opinion piece, What the Plague Can Teach Us About the Coronavirus, I warmly suggest that you do. It's not hard to find. Dr. Marcus is a senior fellow in the Andrew W. Mellon Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography at Rare Book School. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, I got to turn on my other mic. Look at that. Okay, I think we're live on all fronts. Can you all hear me okay? Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. I want to talk to you tonight about uh, a man named Alvise Cornaro and his book, uh, The Treatise on the Sober Life. And his name is written either as Alvise or Luigi. You can see it on the title page over there. So he's the main character of our talk this evening. And this is the main text, though, of course, since this is uh, the Rare Books School, I'm going to talk about texts in their material instantiations, and we are going to follow this text through a variety of other formats, editions, and iterations. This work is part of a larger book project that I'm working on right now uh, that Michael mentioned and told you a little bit about that's based actually on a tremendous amount of manuscript material. That is that one of the things that I'm finding as I'm researching this book on longevity and advanced old age is that there's an enormous interest in longevity and an awareness of advanced old age in Italy in the 16th and 17th centuries, 
But that part of the reason I think that we've missed some of this interest is that so much of it appears actually in manuscripts. So these are a couple of the materials that I've been uh, looking at. We see here, um, the, the big image here is Ulisse Aldrovandi's an excerpt or a page from his Pandechion Epistemonicon, which is his 83-volume manuscript Encyclopedia of All Knowledge, that has a like 80-page entry of snippets that he's collected from his reading about old age. Top right is um, a manuscript book by Pompeo Caimo about ex how to extend old age. Uh, and below is, this begin is an example of one of the many kinds of bureaucratic records uh, public health records that I've been following to track deaths, uh, lives, and deaths of elderly people in the early modern period. So I'm going to step away from my mic for just a second to introduce you to Donna Orsola, who is a widow who uh, died at old age at age 124 in Venice in the year 1580. She probably didn't live that long, but she thought she did. Uh, and so that's what really interests me as part of the project. So uh, with that said, there is a bestseller about, uh, about longevity and about old age in early modern Italy and beyond. Um, and, and that book is, is this book, The uh, Treatise on the Sober Life by Alvise Cornaro. So a little bit about uh, him and this text itself. Alvise Cornaro lived from 1484 to 1566. He had a raucous early life of partying. At age 35, he decided to, that he was, um, he, he was not well. Uh, and he decided to manage that by changing his lifestyle, but also changing his eating and drinking habits, his consumption habits. He was uh, sick with what he describes as the crapula. And um, what actually many scholars now think is probably the earliest recorded account of um, type 1 diabetes, for, uh, type 2 diabetes, excuse me. Um, so he comes up with this idea of the regimented life. And regimen, of course, is... Uh, an important part of how people are engaging with health in this period in general, like what you eat and drink, how you're living. But he, he comes up with a regimented life. So it's not just regimen, but it's about uh, really living this fully uh, morally as well as um, as well as in terms of the consumption of food. He is like, he's separating himself from doctors and thinking about his expertise as fundamentally his own. And his diet, um, is, is kind of extreme. He's got, uh, he, he advocates we should be eating 12 ounces of food and 14 ounces of wine. That's not water, that is wine per day. That you should know your body and know exactly what types of foods work for you. Um, and that you should always be quitting while you're still hungry. So I'm gonna, I'll come back to some of these things, but I want you to have a sense of what this book is saying. And if this book sounds like it might be familiar to you, like maybe I've, I feel like Treatise on the Sober Life, I, don't, I feel like I've heard of that. Part of that might be because the reception history for this book is that it's been just absolutely wildly popular, especially in the Anglophone world. Uh, so these are copies that I paged, just some of the copies that I paged this afternoon in Special Collections here to give you a sense of um, some of the 17th and early 18th century printings in Philadelphia and, um, and Edinburgh. Uh, and you can see it's a man's unerring guide in the top right, but it's Mary Totten, her book. So there's a number of different readers who are engaging with this text. So this is part of the, the sort of dominant historiographical understanding of this text, which is in the context of a long Anglophone reception in a Protestant world. Um, this book is still in print today. There are new editions every few years. This one gets the date wrong, so, um, but, yeah, so who knows about the translation? And there's a nice review, which is um, funny on a number of fronts by Sharon. But I'm, I'm putting it out there as an opportunity to think about the ways that, for, for her, this is a moral question and a Christian question. And this is part of like a long-inherited discourse that is part of this Anglophone tradition, which I think is distinct from how people are reading it in early modern Italy. The other way that this book has been interpreted and understood generally uh, is as an example of early empiricism. That is that Alvise Cornaro is testing his system on his body, and since he keeps living for such a long time, he is the proof of the efficacy of his own regimented life. Um, he then becomes conflated, as you can see in this 18th century, this is a 18th century print that's then pasted into um, a 16th century copy of Alvise Cornaro's book. 
in which he's conflated with Santorio Santorio, who is the guy who invented the weighing chair, you know, the one who he sat in the chair, he ate all his meals, he weighed his food, and then he determined that like some of, and, and then he weighed all his excrement, and then determined that something is missing, and that's like the process of digestion. That is not Aldise Cornaro, although this is kind of printed later. So we think about like the scientific, the, way, the ways that the scientific tradition has dominated also this discourse in thinking about Aldise Cornaro and his work. I'm interested, though, in the 16th and 17th centuries, and so I've been asking what was the contemporary reception of Cornaro's treatise as opposed to sort of thinking about these um, traditions that have dominated the way that we've talked about it more recently. So in order to do that, I'm going to have us look at a bunch of different versions of the text to understand the way that it was circulating. We're going to talk about briefly about readers' responses using a few different readers, but also thinking about marginalia as a source. Um, I'm going to gesture at some printer's insights, and then I'm going to suggest that we should reassess the way that we think about this text generically and the way that we might use readers' um, engagements with text to help us rethink genre in general. So, the Trattato della Vita Sobria was published in, well, Alvis de Carnar writes it first. We have the, the first manuscript evidence of him having written the text in 1552. We know he's living this life from age 35 on, but he starts writing about it uh, and proselytizing about it uh, in 1552. He prints it in 1558 with the Percaccino Press, which is the most important press in Padua, the nicest press in Padua. It's in a quarto, so it's not a medical text, but it's like kind of trying to look like one. And, uh, and it's immediately pirated in Venice uh, and printed in octavo edition. These are spread, I, I, we don't know the numbers that they were printed at, but there are something like 40 surviving copies of these two 1558 editions now. Within a couple years, Alvise Cornar prints a broadsheet um, that survives in only one copy um, that is a series of additions to his uh, sober, his treatise on the sober life. And then after that, he proceeds to reprint the text in a smaller, shorter format, so always in octavo now, and uh, in a much reduced, shortened version in 1561, 1563, and 1565. Um, the original quarto edition has uh, like eight gatherings. Uh, we're down to one gathering of eight by the time we hit these. So we're looking at a change, I think, in a presentation of his ideas in a very serious way. We are no longer looking at a book that is masquerading as a medical text. We are looking at a book that is a pamphlet and part of the cheap print world. Additionally, as he's selling these treatises, uh, he's aging, both in real life and in his persona that he's um, that he's showing here. So you can see that I've got his ages at each of these editions. The age in parentheses is his real age, and the age uh, that's not in parentheses is the age that he announces himself as uh, by in, in the printing of the book. Um, we've got some famous responses, or if not famous responses, responses of famous people to this text. One is by Girolamo Cardano, and this is actually, I was, I was noting that in the 18th century copies that are here, Cardano's response, or an abridged part of Cardano's response, is actually included after the text. So this becomes part of how people think about this text. And Cardano is a physician, uh, naturalist, and uh, well-known humanist in this period, in this uh, 16th century. And he's really intrigued by, the quant by Cornaro's argument about the quantity and type of food and drink. Uh, that is, he's, he's interested in the fact that Cornaro is not prescribing specific foods. Um, Car Cardano maybe thinks that he's being secretive about it, and that's part of it. Uh, uh, Cornaro Cardano, I was practicing this in advance, and I knew I was still going to get it wrong. Cornaro <laughs> uh, argues that it's because everybody has different bodies, and they need to be able to understand what their different body needs. Cardano is also distraught about the fact that... Uh, Cornaro is advocating for more wine than food. Um, that that's, goes against sort of general regulations from physicians at the time. Um, and as you can see here, there's a copy of this book that shows marginalia that sort of is interested in these same sort of quantities, again, um, that, that Cardano is looking at. He criticizes Cornaro for not really speaking like a physician. Car Cornaro says in advance that he's not a physician and not presenting himself as a physician, but Cardano says he's not really a physician, he's really a philosopher. 
Well, a philosopher has a response to Cardano's, uh, to Cornaro's treatise as well. Uh, this is Spironi Spironi. He's um, a philosopher and a literary figure operating in Padua at the same time as Cornaro. They are friends. Cornaro sometimes has a patronage, patronage friendship, shall we say, with him. And Spironi Spironi argues that the, the sober life is not philosophically appropriate. He writes, so it is that one should never, so it is that one should never eat unless it is to live. Is everything then to this end? What about these higher things, right? What about faith? What about art? What about friendship? These are the things that life is for, and you've just reduced it all to food. Also, if we're always thinking about food, then you never have the, the mental space to even be able to configure, like, to, to consider what a different life, what a, a philosophically rich life would be. So these are a couple of the famous responses, sort of rejecting uh, Cornaro's claims. But I think that we can also get at some less famous or less um, or unnamed responses by looking at the surviving editions of these texts. So um, I tracked down, there are, there are 40 surviving copies of the 1558 editions, um, and I've seen, or corresponded extensively with librarians who have seen 30 of them now. Uh, in my most hilarious research methodology, I printed off Google Books copies and then re-annotated them um, so that I copied all of the things that these other readers had done in their books. So that's when you're wondering how I compiled this, that I did it um, in a sort of bizarre manual fashion. Um, so I've looked at many copies of these books and a couple of my conclusions here for you. One um, is that when we think about this book going both down format and into these shorter editions, um, where the text is changed, but the ideas are the same, the annotations on copies, there are no copies of the 1558 editions that have annotations after the first half. So basically nobody's <laughs> engaging with this as a lengthy text. People are engaged with what's happening to it, the beginning portions of it. Uh, so I think that that might have been a signal to Cornaro and printers alike that a different version of this might sell better, or at least that we, we have an understanding that readers and the um, printer and author are, are thinking along the same lines about how best to value this. Additionally, there's a really interesting, or what I thought was a really interesting emphasis on aphorisms in this text, the, his use of aphorisms. So to give you... Um, an example, this, these are all images from the same part of the text where um, Cornaro is talking about how um, there, there's a, an, a proverb that what tastes good to you is, is what tastes good is good for you. And he's saying, no way. I love melons and they make me feel terrible. Um, actually, that's actually what he says. Um, and that's, that's very, like, this is something that lots of readers are noting over and over again. And that's true of other aphorisms and proverbs throughout. You can see the, the marginalia here says, like, the, the falsity of this proverb, right? People are noting that, he's reject, that, that there are proverbs and that he's rejecting them based on his own um, experience. The other thing that readers are quite interested in is his engagement with the non-natural. So those are the, the forces outside the body that change health. So your humoral balance is, is inside your body, but that can be affected by things like sleep and sex and what you eat. And so when Cornaro is reflecting on that, and we're looking at an annotated copy of these pages sort of lightly in the background. But so a, a quote from Cardano, Cornaro here, is he writes, and I still, and still I guard against suffering from cold or heat, again, these are non-naturals, and from over-exhausting myself, and I try not to impede my normal sleep schedule and I avoid excessive coitus and breathing bad air or suffering in the wind or sun since these two are disorders, right? These are things, the ways that the body becomes unbalanced. So it's not just food, it's these other aspects as well, but it is primarily food. We have to start with food before you can regulate the emotions and the other parts as well, which this reader notes. So here I'm quoting what you see in the right-hand margin where the reader has written, you cannot guard entirely against the disorders of the soul, right? Like your, your thoughts might become disordered which will sometimes occur without causing too much damage to the body. So the soul gets disturbed but doesn't cause so much damage. The previous uh, two excesses, that is eating and drinking, are the disorders of crapula, right? Like these are the things that are really causing this dissolution of the body. 
there's a actually blurry on the left-hand side, excuse me, version of um, what I just showed you. The other thing that I was struck by is the ways that different readers and the, the annotations aren't actually exciting to look at, so I'm going to put up his portrait here instead. The ways that different readers are focused on aspects of his life as autobiographical events. That is not the melons per se, and not the weight of the food per se, but that he's in a carriage accident, and then that he, um, at an older age, and that he resists what physicians are telling him to do and sticks with his regimented eating and his regimented life. That's, that's very interesting to him, to them. And so one of the things that I want us to, that I've been turning over and I think coming to understand about this book and what it's trying to do through its rejection as readers are thinking about its rejection of aphorisms, as readers are thinking about how he engages with the non-naturals, as readers are thinking about what parts of the text are interesting to them. I think that we need to think about this as a, a text of self-presentation and text of revealing a character. So right, this is not, the, the portrait by Tintoretto here is not a portrait of the partying young Cornaro at all, right? This is the Cornaro of the sober life, um, if ever there was one visually depicted. But he's not just a, a steady, um, a still portrait, he's one who speaks. And I think that this is important. I think that it's, that, that it's incredibly important that we're thinking about the speech of the elderly character. And of course, this is something that when people in early modern Italy were thinking about old age, they were in, accustomed to, right? Cicero's De Senectute, right, the, his, uh, from the De Officis, is uh, a dialogue, right? It's a dialogue in which Cicero is trying to like reestablish his position as extremely useful in the final, um, at the end of the Republic. Um, so, and this book was printed, you know, every year in Italy for all of the, I think, 15th and 16th century. There are 73 Venetian editions in the 16th century alone. So there's like, this, is, this text is all over the place. This is how people are learning Latin in the period. So everybody's engaged with the speaking old man as character. They're also engaged with the speaking old man as character in, for example, plays from the period. This is a place where, um, where elderly people crop up a lot as, as largely as stock characters. And this one's kind of delightful. Um, you have uh, Marietta, uh, who's seeing her father, and she's like, ah, this awful old man, this vecchiaccio, this awful old man, he won't die. All he does is eat and eat and talk and talk, and his mouth is always eating and talking, right? Like opening and closing. This, this negative characterization of the elderly man that again stands in such stark contrast to what, Cardon to what Cornaro is presenting as his own self-characterization. If we look again sort of down format into the world of cheap print, there are even more options for thinking about these characters of the elderly and characterizations of the elderly. So we have little songs, little songs that were maybe performed, recited by an old man from Siena at the age of 86, whether or not that's true or not. This is actually a repackaging of an earlier humanist poem. Uh, but again, the idea that it would have been performed, that this character is speaking um, in an embodied way. Then we have another one that's giving you uh, an old woman. Old women are, again, stock characters to be ridiculed. Um, here, picking fleas off of each other. So this is a like highly classed document as well. And I think you know, I think the printer, I think Percaccino and the people working at his press were totally aware of the fact that they were printing cheap or literature that would be easy for many people to buy, and that was in conversation with these other kinds of um, of uh, performed texts. Um, you can see that they've sexualized Cornaro's text quite explicitly with the historiated initials. These are short. This is not like a book with lots of historiated initials. This is the historiated initial. This is the beginning of the one that's dedicated to the bishop, right? Like this is inappropriate, <laughs> but this is what's chosen. Um, and, and that this gets repeated in multiple editions, I think, is a signal that the printers are aware of what market these texts are circulating and how people are using them. And of course, this makes perfect sense, and it's something that Cornaro himself would have been highly aware of. He is the main patron for this man, Angelo Beolco, also known as Ruzzante, who is the most important playwright working in Paduan dialect at the time. So he's taking, he's rejecting like Tuscan, 
or what we think of as Italian now, language writing these um, hilarious comedies that are playing off of the Paduan dialect itself. And his characters of the elderly are hilarious too, right? He's saying that here's a, one of his characters, his character Rizzante is like the rough man who's then talking, uh, presenting some gossip about Sir Tommaso who's in love with this woman. Ever. It's always the, like, it's always the horny old man who's in love with the younger woman. And he writes, and to this, and listen to this. This is what, she, what, what the gossip on the street is, that if she were to spend the night with you, she'd get as filthy as if snails had passed over her, that you cough like a cackling hen, that your farts sound like gunshots, that you have a hernia like bad pipes, and that's why you can't walk so fast. And this is just a snippet. It goes on and on and on. And Cornaro knows this. This is Cornaro's Odeo, his Odeon, which is arguably the first example of Roman inspired humanist architecture in the Veneto, right here, and his loggia, uh, which is right across from the main church of St. Anthony's in Padua, where Cornaro lives. And he's staging all of Beolco, all of Ruzzante's plays. He is 100% aware of what it means to speak as a character. He is laughing at these. This isn't like, he's not offended by what Ruzzante is doing. He understands that this is part of a set of generic conventions that are meant to amuse. But he wants you not to be amused here, but to take on his regimented life as a way of living differently. And so his character is different. His character gives us a life alive, as he describes it, as opposed to half dead, which is how people think of the elderly usually. It's a most perfect age. Old age is enjoyable. Uh, what a delight it is that at this age we do not tire of learning, he writes. Oh, what a happy age. Right? This is a completely different characterization, I think, of the text that we don't see if we aren't able to understand it, uh, not as the text that has come to us, the formats that have come to us, the packaging that has come to us today, but in the context of the packaging that it was um, presented in, in its own time. I want to give you a set of takeaways, uh, and then we can move on to questions. Michael has told me that I'm not allowed to talk for 45 minutes. This is a 30-minute one. <laughs> First, I, I, I think that in its own right, this is a really interesting reassessment of what is a canonical text for how we think about aging and old age. That is that I'm asking you to think about a text that has been treated primarily as moralistic and scientific within the context instead of early modern theatrical production and cheap print. And that's a huge sort of realignment of how we think about this book. Next, I think that we can think about the history of reception, the ways that I've traced readers, the ways that I've traced uh, responses to this text as a way to evaluate, question, reevaluate the genres of texts. That is that, of course, texts have, genre is a set of formal conventions. We know that well. Those of us who are at Rare Book School understand clearly that genre is also indicated by a set of material conventions. I would argue also that reader engagement can allow us to think about whether those material and formal conventions are leading our interpretations astray or reinforcing um, the material and formal as well. This is, I think, potentially a question and a methodological point that we can apply well beyond this book. Finally, I would like to uh, offer a heartfelt thanks, a grazie di cuore, to those of you who are here, but also my teachers and colleagues who have um, given me this space to learn in over the past decade, uh -oh. more, more than a decade, more than a decade, um, which I think has led me to think a lot about, I, I came to the study of books and old books on my own, um, but while I was here, I received a set of rigorous tools for studying them. And I think that those are distinct things. Um, and I feel really grateful to be able to bring both my enthusiasm and the set of skills that I've learned here. So thank you all. Really looking forward to having some conversation around this. Can I answer questions? Yes. This is wonderful. Thank you. Um, I have a brief observation and then an actual question. Right? Please. Uh, first, I love at the end where you're thinking about genre in terms of readers. Thanks. I think about Paul Hunter and his work on title pages yep. and the linkage between yep. genre and readers and all these questions, uh, which leads into the question I have for you. In this talk, you have actual readers, people writing in books. Yeah. You have reader imaginaries mm -hmm. who they're addressing. You have different reader imaginaries. And it's risky 
to conflate those mm -hmm. because they're not quite the same. Um, I know your comment about you know half the book is written and somehow they find out and print a shorter version, or maybe that's not what you mean. But I they, yeah. Keep going, sorry. No, the question is just how, how are you keeping these apart? And, and you, can, you can say, I, I misunderstood that part too in your answer too. How do you keep the imaginaries and the actual readers on that side apart? Yeah, no, I don't want to suggest, uh, um, I don't, I want to suggest that readers and the printer there are on the same page, not necessarily that the printers know that people aren't annotating. I think that uh, the printers and the author sense opportunity to sell more copies, but in a different way, and that the annotations support that, that people are not engaging with this text in a long form way. Uh, they're engaging with the beginning of it, with the point of it. Um, and that provides an opportunity for a shortened, a set of shortened texts to do really well. So I was mentioning to Michael beforehand that uh, some of the texts that I've been looking at uh, as, that are characterized as bestsellers uh, weren't, right? They were, it looks like they're bestsellers because they're reappearing every few years, but they're actually the exact same sheets with different title pages over and over again. And that's quite different from what we're seeing with Coronaro's book, which is that the text is undergoing in different iterations. The text itself is being revised, it is being printed in different ways by the same guy. So I think that uh, he remains, uh, both Pecaccino and Coronaro remain closely um, engaged with each other throughout this process. Does that go some way toward answering your question? Yeah, Do you want me to keep going on imagine? I do, but I think Barbara Okay. Yeah. yeah. Following up on James's question, I think this is a really interesting um, uh, aspect um, to, to think about. Um, I mean, in terms of the printers and their decision, um, mm -hmm. I mean, with I'm, I'm just trying to think of other factors, like economic factors, yeah. and why you would focus on a certain and the relative cost of producing a book in a shorter format. So, can you talk about some of the other, you know, motivations for why a book would have appeared? another form and also uh, you know it's just how, how a printer would begin to know that books are annotated and certainly oh no they don't know right. certainly right. they don't so, know so could you talk more about that and other factors that have influenced the changing form of the book yeah i mean i think cornell is paying for it like from the at the, at the very least this like quarto edition like that's him. This is a pretty book. And you can already see like the Venetian pirated edition is not presented in the same format um, and is sort of more, uh, the, the type is different. It's just, it's a less formal kind of presentation. Um, the history of the printing of this book goes beyond the 1560s as well. So in 1566, Cornaro dies. In 1591, the book that most of if the most early modernists have probably looked at uh, is printed by his grandson. Um, and that is a compilation of all of these texts, all four editions, not the broadsheet, but the other four editions all together and addressed to the Pope um, at a time with, with a letter being like, may you live longer because it's in the 1590s and the popes are dying every like six months not actually six but actually six some of them every six months there's a huge papal turnover there um and so i think that it's being repackaged at that point with a very different aim in mind right that this is then it's a bigger book again it then ends up in latin in when it gets picked up by um by a jesuit uh Leonardus Lessius, uh, and, and translated into Latin, uh, and then printed in 1614, I think, in Latin, uh, and then takes off. It ends up everywhere. The printing history completely explodes once it's in Latin. It gets translated uh, into English, into French, into, by the 18th century, it's in Russian, like from Polish into Russian. It's, it's everywhere. Um, so I, I do think that people, I, I think that Cornaro himself is deeply involved in these early years. I mean, like, when I talk about it, these different editions having different texts, I mean, he's responding to queries. He's changing certain points. The, 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 the thrust of the thing is the same. Um, his, his goal is the same, but details are changing. You know, he thinks that you're going to live to, that 100 is the limit. Then he's like, eh, it's, he's reading Tommaso Rangoni. He's like, yeah, it's going to be 120. You know, so there, there's different, um, you can watch him evolving a bit over the different uh, texts themselves. Though I think it's really interesting that then they get smooshed together by 1591. Um, I'd be curious to, if you all think it, 
there are so many more copies once you hit that bigger book, as we know, bigger books survive. Um, but I haven't traced all the uh, surviving copies of that one yet, so I don't feel like I can say much more than that that one circulates incredibly widely, wide and far, and then gets translated, and then that really opens things up. But Cornaro's involvement is different. So I think, I think um, does, that, does that answer your question? Do you have a follow-up? Yeah, I will. I was just wondering about, you know, you talk about who's applying capital, but what record, do we have records about how much? Yeah, okay. Just what, what kind of records we have? Well, and you know, he's, I, I, there's a, a letter with, a, his, he has a friend who prints a plague treatise with Percaccino, so there's some sense that maybe that's why he's there instead of printing in Venice. He's certainly the playwrights that he's working with are printing in Venice. He chooses to print instead uh, in, in Padua with, um, with, again, like the sort of elite printer of Padua. Um, so I, it's, it strikes me as being a Cornaro-driven affair. Um, and but the fact that so many of them are, I think so many of them are selling, that he's reissuing them over and over again, I think that they're popular. I think people are using them. You get people writing in being like, I've tried your program, and it sucks, but it's going well. <laughs> you know, I'm a believer. I'm hungry all the time. <laughs> and um, so I, I do think, and, and again, that gets to your point about like reader, readers that we can see, reception that we can see versus reception that we can infer rather than imagine, right? I mean, like Marks and Books is that, that we don't have to imagine that, it's there. Um, but, uh, but I think we have to do both, right? Um, I think it's not enough to look at textual reception. I think like as snippets appear in other written works, I think it's important to look at the objects as a sign of reception as well. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I've got nothing on apothecaries, so that's, that's interesting. Um, no responses from apothecaries. Lots of responses from bishops. He's very much connected to the Catholic hierarchy. He's um, quite pious. The book is opening with, like, the big threats of our age are Lutheranism, uh, insincere flattery, and the crapula. <laughs> um, so uh, this is, and, and that all gets censored out by the time it ends up in English, of course, because that doesn't go over well um, for the English reading audience at the time. Um, so nothing, nothing from the apothecaries. I was really surprised that, because I've tried to trace this in a couple of physicians' libraries now, and Ulisse Aldrovandi, who, who's at, in Bologna, um, has copies of Rangoni's text, so that's sort of like the learned counterpart to this that's circulating at the same time. Um, and it's a big, I've got some pictures of it here. Um, do I? I don't. Never mind, sorry. Um, There we go. Um, Rangoni's book is big, it's clunky, it's learned, it's full of citations. The Latin is horrible. It's in, it starts in Latin, right? <laughs> starts and doesn't leave Latin. Um, well, it does leave Latin. It gets, he pulls out a tiny bit of it and reprints those or has them reprinted as little regimens, dietetic manuals for the doge and the dogaresa um, in the 16th century in Italian. Um, but physicians don't seem to be, with the exception of Cornaro, I'm not seeing that many physicians engaging with it. I think it's just speaking to a different audience. Aldrovandi reads Rangoni and like writes in his book that he has it, but he doesn't ever mention Cornaro, though um, Pagliotti does. Um, so in 15, 
95? Yes. Uh, in 1595, the Cardinal of Bologna, or Archbishop, I don't remember, I don't think he's Cardinal yet. Uh, Archbishop of Bologna, no, he is Cardinal. Uh, Cardinal of Bologna, uh, Gabriele Pagliotti, writes this book on, on good old age. So he's trying to, again, reform, I, I think he's trying explicitly to reform the character of old age. And he says even like, you want a portrait of what old age could be? It could be Filippo Neri, right? Like the most recent really awesome pious guy who spent 50 years preaching on the streets of Rome and just died at age 80. Like this is what old age can be. So I think that Cornaro is an early version of rethinking this character. And Gabriele Pagliotti is reading Cornaro. He cites him in the book. He's totally aware of this. So we, we do see it going different places. And I think that ecclesiastical circles is a big aspect of this reception. I mean, it gets aimed in 1591 at the, the popes um, who need to live longer for the stability of Catholicism, of Christendom. Um, nothing on apothecaries. And I think doctors are, my sense is ambivalent. Um, skeptical to ambivalent. Speroni is an interesting case, though, the philosopher who really goes after Cornaro about what this program would mean. And he does so religiously as well. He's like, what are you going to say about those saints that died, at, died young? And, you know, they didn't, some of them didn't eat much, you know. <laughs> um, they lived, they still lived a good life. This is not a reflection. So there are, there, but I think that this is, for Speroni, I, I get a sense of a different sort of um, religious engagement than Cornaro's. I think that it's more sort of performative argumentative and for Cornaro, I mean, he really sees this as like a pious path. Um, Since you raised the philosopher, what about Cato Major, right? Because, because obviously the intertext, the, the obvious intertext here is Cato Major, yeah, right? So, yeah. so how does that run through here? I'm going to punt on that and do some more thinking. I appreciate okay. it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. What did you learn in mimicking all the annotations you saw? I'm so struck by that methodology. You must know things that none of the rest of us know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was kind of a funny experience. I was, I was, when I started this project, I was like, oh, well, you know. I was interested in old age. I had a bunch of sort of leads I wanted to pursue, but it seemed to me that one of the leads that I had to pursue was this giant in the room. And one of my ways of tackling that was to think about it using my tools as a book historian. Um, so I started a spreadsheet and started tracking down where all the copies were and writing collocation formulas for all of them, which are missing their H4 blank sheet. You know, like So th there's a level at which that was purely for my own sort of sense of being able to say that I'd really understood this book and where and, and where it was and how. Um, but then when I went to go talk about it, I was like, I've got to say something about this book now. Um, and nobody wants to hear how many copies of H4 blank sheet are missing. <laughs> so then, then I needed to look at what the book actually looks like. And since it was really frustrating because at first I was trying to move annotations from the Venice pirated copy onto the Padua, and that just didn't work. So I had to, because they're print, they're different books, like the things are on different pages, just wasn't lining up. It didn't make mental sense for me, but I realized I could keep track of annotations in two copies. So I had a printout of the um, scans of the 1558 Paduan copy, printout of the scans of the 1558 Venice pirated edition, and then I just went through and underlined everything that was underlined in one, uh, and then in the other, and then wrote in what the annotations were, and sort of the nature of them, and that gave me the ability to start synthesizing to say, like, aphorisms are jumping out, which of course makes sense. We know commonplacing is, you know, like, commonplacing is a way of reading a text. Like, if that hadn't showed up that way, that probably would have been really weird. Um, but, but it's there, right? That we don't see annotations in the second half. These, it allowed me to sort of do the synthetic work across the individual copies so that I was able to like come up out of the weeds a little bit and think about what this maybe forest of readers looked like. It's extremely, I'm sorry, just a tiny follow-up. It's extremely interesting because I'm very interested in the difficulty, the failure you mentioned, certain annotations couldn't translate. Because the positive of that is there's something about the physical form of one or the other that makes a certain annotation possible. 
So how do you, can you say more? I don't know if you thought about yeah, that. Yeah, so, by this. no, my, my example here is more, I'm, and I'm going to actually respond from, uh, with a point from um, one of, from my previous book, from the work on censorship, which is that when Cardano uh, is censored, he writes so much, and, um, and it gets reprinted in so many different ways that the censors themselves note in the index <laughs> In the index of expurgations, note that they've devised a system for distinguishing like types of editions so that you can find things in the in the right place across them. That is that the books themselves, when they don't align, it can be very difficult. And it, this book doesn't have chapter headings or something. Um, it can be very difficult to figure out where in the text you are. Um, and that's something that readers were aware of at the time too, that looking across different editions in order to find specific places is like really complicated. And, Corn and Cardano's books, like Cornaro's, don't have lots of easy dividing places for being able to track that down within the larger text. So that was, I was just feeling a little bit like a, I don't know, funny version of an early modern reader myself, <laughs> annotating and re-annotating. But I mean, there is something about the practice of, I mean, we, we know that writing in books is a, mnemonic technique is an analytic skill. Um, it's kind of fun to embody that, uh, but also is really the only way I could come up with to make sense of what I was seeing. Um, because it doesn't work if you're starting to excerpt, right? If you're like from, from the part where he says this to the part that he says this, which again is getting back to my, my work on censorship, um, that, that doesn't itself make sense. It has to be translated onto the copy in order to really understand what, what the text is doing. So for, in order for me to understand how readers were interacting um, with his ideas, not just with words, I needed to, to see it on the book itself or on a printed print, set of printouts of scans of the book. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's fun. A little, a little hokey, but really fun. Yeah, so uh, not so much. Um, his text isn't showing up repeatedly. But what I do want to argue is that his book and the books that Tommaso Rangoni is publishing in the same time, these are incredibly widespread, and they go along with certain changes to the archival record. So I think that there's an increased attention. Um, at the time that these books are being published, there's an increased attention to, attention to and awareness of old age, especially, and I think this is a Veneto thing. So a, a few words to say about the Veneto. First, um, Venice is a gerontocracy um, at this point. The Venetian doges at the age of, ele the age of election of the Venetian doges in the 16th century is on average 16 years older than the popes. Right, so that's the only other sort of ruler in Europe that is being elected at or coming to office to power, if you will, um, at, as like potentially as an, as an elderly person, and they are like way more elderly. <laughs> um, there's a few different reasons for that, but that's uh, that's important to Venice, and I think that it's important to the image of Venice as this most serene republic that goes on and on, that continues on, that these elderly men are running it. Also, then their sons are dead, so they're less likely to be ruled by family interests. Um, so then, though, you start to see in the record keeping an increased attention to age, which I think is quite interesting, and that's. Um, following um, the publication, this, and this isn't a good example of that, so I'm sorry, um, but, but I'm gonna run with it anyway. Let's, let's, let's go. So this is an example from the Venetian necrologies. This is from 1552. Uh, and you can see this woman, Regina Torta, uh, from uh, 100 years old, was sick for a long time, dies in San Donso. That's the, the parish that she dies in. You can see another Donna Maria Vecchia, an old woman, 80 years old. Um, she's been sick for a long time already and dies of fever uh, in this other parish. And, but then you see that there aren't ages for these other ones, right? Like Camilla, the daughter of so-and-so. Donna um, Bernardina, who is sick, has been sick for a while. Donna Margarita was um, working in the household of so-and-so, and she's been sick for a while. So, so we don't have ages, except for these 
unusual elderly cases in the early 1550s. And this is actually true of the records from the 1530s on, that we don't have ages. Then, all of a sudden, in 1563, I think like October 1st, 1563, there are dates. And I haven't been able to track down like a request that, that, that the re record keeping changed. So I've gone through the Sanita records, I've gone through um, the different um, like relevant concilio records in the archives. Um, but I just, I can't help but think that this is happening at exactly the same time that there's all of this printed material circulating about these elderly people and how long they can live. And, and Tommaso Rangoni's book is like to how to live to 120 like a Venetian. The Venetians are especially able to live to these old ages. So I do think that there's a way in which these things that are circulating in the cultural realm are having ramifications also in the bureaucratic realm. And then additionally, one other point, and I can talk about archival documents about this stuff all day or all night, so stop me when, we, when I need to. Um, but I went and looked at the records in Milan for this same period. There are, most states don't have um, consolidated um, necrologies in this period. This is unusual that Venice does, unusual that Milan does. Um, they have them at the parish level, but that's distinct from then amalgamating into the, the, the sort of citywide or statewide level. Um, and so I've been sampling in the Venetian and the Milanese records. And the Venetians think that they live longer than everyone else. I think that that's a political story that they're telling themselves. Um, although it might also be true because they're throwing their poop into the canals instead of into the streets. So there's probably a dysentery element. <laughs> there's potentially a dysentery element that goes along with that. Um, but the Milanese don't, like based on my readings of these bureaucratic records that again, these, these come to be because they're tracking plague outbreaks. That's the part where it's like sick for this many days. That's because if you're sick for 25 days, it's not plague, right? They know that you're going to get it and die quickly. And, and um, so these are records that are produced for a completely different purpose than what I'm reading them for. And you can see quite clearly that the Venetians are thinking that they live longer than the Milanese think that they live. Uh, they have sort of yeah, I'll just, I'll just stop there. So that, that's been very interesting to me, um, that you can then read these documents to think about self-representation, self-awareness, and the ways in which sort of the, the cultural ambit influences then the production of bureaucratic records as well. Thanks. Okay.